0: And that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may or may not know this about me. I like a good story. But I don't read much fiction. I don't read uh, fiction pretty much at all. I think the last fiction book I may have read was Lord of the Rings years ago before the movies came out because I thought, boy, I should read that before the movies come out. Um, I prefer biography or autobiography or uh, history or um, those type of things. Um, uh, Really, I really like super dry, boring books about the Bible, so kind of the geeks and nerds out there that uh, write stuff about word studies like we watched. Um, That's what I really enjoy reading and uh, investing my time and energy in. And uh, the ETS, the Evangelical Theological Society, it is a group of scholars. Uh, uh, I'm not a member because I'm not scholarly enough for them. Uh, Plus, I'm too cheap. I don't pay their fees. But uh, they uh, gather once a year, and this year they gathered in uh, the Boston area, and uh, they have an uh, annual meeting. Next year, uh, their meeting will be in Denver, and I'm super excited because it is a mega Bible nerd fest. Um, So there were, at any moment, uh, there are about 50 to 100 papers being read every hour, uh, dealing f- everything in the Old Testament, the New Testament, um, dealing with modern day issues, uh, and the church dealing with all sorts of stuff. Um, I'll let you know when it is, but it's usually the week before Thanksgiving in November, and I'm already excited. Um, and uh, today we've come to a passage that's a Bible nerd fest. I read a part of it last week, and Partly why I perhaps like the Old Testament in some ways better is because I do love a good story. And Paul sometimes can be super didactic. Uh, But when I place what's going on with Paul into the context of his life, then it helps me see it leap off the page. And sometimes he doesn't give us all the information from the beginning. In fact, The key message, the key information that helps place this book into context for me isn't found until the second chapter. And uh, we're in the book of Colossians today, the first chapter, and we'll be reading verse 15 through 20. But to help you understand the flow and direction of this message, I want to place it into context for you, this writing, this book, this letter, really. Because if you were to see it, uh, arrive at your church doorstep, it'd just be a page or two. It'd show up in the mail and it'd be a small little letter. And that's how the church in Colossae received it. Small letter from Paul. In chapter 2, we learn that Paul is in prison when he writes it. Paul is suffering. And why is he in prison? Well, he's in there for the usual reason for Paul. He's been preaching the gospel to people and they don't like what they're hearing. Isn't that interesting? How often does that happen or occur to any of us, if ever? And Paul is in prison and he writes this letter to the Colossians, to Colossae. in this first chapter, this first chapter is by far one of the most impressive, most amazing pictures of the person of Jesus Christ that we have in all of Holy Scripture. It is magnificent, and he is looking at Christ in his incarnation. Incarnation is just a big, fancy, 25-cent theological word for in the flesh. Jesus was in the flesh. He put on flesh, and he moved into our neighborhood is how John puts it in his gospel. And Jesus here, Paul is talking about the cosmic Christ, but there's elements of it that help us ground it in our understanding and experience of Jesus. And so the words of Paul from prison 2,000 years ago. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That's an important line, isn't it? The Son is the image of the invisible God. He's the very image. Right off the bat, Paul is telling us that Jesus is God. That's Paul's understanding of who Jesus is. And historically, that's the church's understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And let me tell you, friends, that's not our culture's understanding of who Jesus Christ is. In the next, I'm sure throughout December and and definitely around Easter time, there's always some sort of of claim that comes from uh, scholarship that undermines or seeks to undermine the divinity of, the godness of Jesus. And they're wrong. They're completely and utterly wrong because there was a man, his name was Paul, and he experienced the risen Christ on a road to Damascus. He himself saw him. And later in his life, he tells us he was taken up into the third heaven and he stood in the very counsel of God. And he knows these things firsthand and he's telling us, he's, he is relaying us These things to us. And he's not some quack. He's willing to go to prison. He's willing to go to his death. He went to his death in Rome for these things. So either Paul is telling the truth, or he's a madman who needs to be avoided at all costs. It's up to you to decide. But Paul says, the sun is the image of the invisible God. The Hebrews had a doctrine. I shared this last week. It was the two powers. And they believed that Yahweh was in heaven and he could not be seen. He could not be interacted with by humans. But there was a second power of heaven. And this was the... This was the angel of Yahweh that we encounter so often in the Old Testament. This is the the Christophanes, the appearances of Jesus before he's incarnate. These are the appearances of Christ throughout the Old Testament and the the Israelites saw this and they said there must be kind of two parts to God somehow where there's this part in heaven, there's this Yahweh that none of us can see or touch or experience, but there's this other part or person of Yahweh who interacts with us, the burning bush, the word that stood and spoke to Samuel, the presence of God in the temple. And that's what Paul is picking up on. He's a good Jew. He knows His Hebrew scriptures. He knows his Jewish theology, and he says the Son is the image of the invisible God. He's the second power, the firstborn over all creation. And this is where Christianity gets entangled with all sorts of other religions, where other religions teach that Jesus was a wise man, that he was subject to creation, that he was just part of creation, that perhaps when God created creation, he also created Jesus. But that's not what this teaches. It doesn't say that he's the firstborn of creation. It says he's the firstborn over all creation. Jesus Christ was never created. He always has been. He is beginningless. And He is over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. (laughs) What a crazy claim. What a crazy claim Paul makes. He's saying that this is God in the flesh, but he died. This God died. And this is clearly what Paul is teaching here. He says he is the firstborn among the dead. You see, he picks up on that idea and he talks about Jesus being supreme. I've been reading uh, a book by Athanasius this Christmas season. Um, he's an ancient old guy and uh, he was an early scholar in the church and it's called On the Incarnation. And one of the questions he's wrestling with is why couldn't Jesus have just died like many of us will, where we just go to sleep in a hospital bed, or at home, and we die? Why did it have to be this bloody public spectacle? Why did it have to be death on a cross? And if you remember, Jesus himself says, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down. This was a chosen way of death. This was God-orchestrated death. This wasn't just Jesus is this helpless victim, that if I saw this bumper sticker and it made me mad that if he had a gun, he'd still be alive. This is not some victim thing. This is son of God who had legions of angels available at his beck and call. He could have orchestrated his death any myriad of ways, but the cross is the way he chose. Why? Athanasius argues his death needed lots of witnesses. His death needed lots of witnesses so that if he had just died in a room at the back of the house and a couple of folks knew about it and he came back, he's like, hey, I rose from the dead. We'd all be like, uh, no, you just had a really powerful nap, I think. But when you have a death that's bloody and gruesome and the Romans are overseeing it, making sure that he dies, it's very public. It was clear that He died. Athanasius argues that this is public on purpose. So that when he was buried publicly, when he was dead publicly, everybody knew Jesus was gone. And it is through that death that he becomes supreme. It is through his death that he becomes supreme. How does that work? You see, Jesus Christ had to die in order to become supreme because this world was ruled by false powers. And in many respects today, it still is. It's ruled by false powers, authorities, and God's little G that empowers. Did you see him earlier in verse 15? Thrones and powers and rulers and authorities. I think Paul's talking about both human things, but he's also talking about invisible because he talks about visible and invisible there right after that. I think he's saying that this world is ruled by visible rulers we can all vote for if we choose. We can all cuss and discuss after. But it's also ruled by invisible entities. I mean, what on earth gave the charge of evil to Germany during the Nazi era. Such evil, such hatred for the Israelites, for the Jews. Is that just from the human heart? Christian Christian teaching says it could be just from the human heart, but Christian teaching also says, but they could have also had some extra help, some invisible help. Paul says, Jesus is supreme because of his death. You see, Jesus Christ, the manger, Christmas time, teaches us that Jesus is God and God is sovereign. And if God is sovereign, Christmas means that he can be and wants to be and must be sovereign in your life. He must be sovereign in your life. The interesting thing with sovereignty is none of us like it much. We like it when we're sovereign. We don't care for much when other people are sovereign. Just think about your relationship with your boss or your parent or anyone who's had any kind of authority over you at any time. There's something in us that kind of bristles at it. And let me try to... Put this into a perspective because one of the things when when Jesus is sovereign in our lives, there will be a radical reordering in our life. There will be a radical reordering in our life. And let me give you a a a picture that Tim Keller used that I thought was so powerful. Let's imagine that you have a, a best friend who has this rare, crazy disease and they're going to be dead in a week. And you go to the doctor with them and the doctor says, I can cure you. You will be able to live out your days, but you can never eat chocolate again. Now, Some of you, that's clearly a difficult choice, but you're going to be dead in a week. So you can either eat a lot of chocolate in a week's time or none for the rest of your life. Your friend struggles as well. And your friend says, no chocolate ever again. Forget that. What would you think of your friend? I'd think they're crazy. There's so many other things to enjoy in life besides chocolate. All you got to give up is chocolate and you'll save your life. You know, as a pastor, I have this conversation with people. I similar conversation. Where people will say to me, Steve, I'm interested in this Christian thing. I'm interested in following Jesus. I'm wrestling with following Jesus Christ. But I've heard a rumor that if I become a Christian, I can't have sex until I'm married. Or I can only have sex with my spouse. Or that these other things are out of bounds and these can't be done. And if that's true, then I just don't know. Don't think I'm interested I mean, if God is against homosexuality, then Christianity is just off the table for me. And what does that reveal about our hearts? If we have made something absolute that is not absolute, if we have absolutized something that is, is not meant to be absolute, you see, you can't know the absolute God if you absolutize other things in your life. If you make anything, if you have this, how do you know if you've made something absolute in your life? If you're a Christian and you have things in your life that you kind of do over on the side and you know, "Ah, I shouldn't be doing that, but I know, I need it, I want it, I have to have it, then you are using the language of supremacy. If you have to have something, if the world has to be this way, You're using language of supremacy, and the scriptures say Jesus is supreme. Nothing else. You don't add Jesus to your life to round it out. You don't add Jesus as a supplement to your life. You don't add Jesus to the American dream and push him in there and go, wow, it's all perfect now. It's not how it works. And I don't care what the church has said in our country. Think of it. We live in Disneyland in world history. How many pastors do you know wrote a letter to their congregation from prison? Pastors you've known have driven pretty nice cars. and The most guff they get is they show up at church in jeans. They live in nice homes in the community with you. The most guff they get is well you get a housing allowance. You can write this off. Paul knew what it was to suffer for the supremacy of Christ. And that's an important thing to remember to keep in mind because In that reordering of life, when God is sovereign in our lives, that reordering can be insanely frustrating. It can be insanely painful because things that we thought we needed, things that we thought we had to have, seems God likes to chop those off, to cut them off, to remove them so that we know I just need him. I just need him. I just need him. As we keep reading this passage and we've already reached it with the supremacy we we see that one of the parts of him being sovereign is he must be lord. I mean did you hear the language that Paul used about this this body and this head metaphor? Anybody ever cut off their head and seen how that went? Right? You need a head. For the body to work. I mean, everything could be perfect with the body. The body could be in perfect, perfect form, but if it's missing the head, then it's dead. Likewise, the head is dead without the body. Christ is head of the church. Now, obviously, that breaks down there. Jesus is alive with or without us. But Christ is head of the body, his church. And when you make Jesus your Lord and Savior, when He becomes your Lord, when you place your allegiance, your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ, then He is your head. He is the head of the church corporate, and He is the church, head of each of us individually. And what does that mean? What does that look like? You know, I love a good story. I sure enjoyed The Lord of the Rings. There's a couple of hobbits that I know their name. Do you know some hobbits' names? Who's the most famous hobbit of all? Rudolph, I'm sorry. The most famous hobbit of all, Frodo, the big-footed hobbit. Okay, sorry. Just working a new song for you so you can remember. So you have Frodo and you have Samwise Gamgee. And why do we know those hobbits? Out of all the hobbits that live in Hobbiton, out of all the hobbits that live in the Shire, out of all the hobbits that that J.R.R. Tolkien dreamt up, why do we know those two? Because they followed the architect of the Christ, archetype of the Christmas story. What? This is some big words. You see, the Christmas story is an archetype of every great adventure ever the christmas story is a story where jesus christ left the most secure place you could ever imagine the most safe place that ever existed jesus left that place and he entered into the manger the manger and there he encountered great danger and peril Greater danger and greater peril than any of us will ever face. The Son of God did that. And why? For us. He entered into that for us. So that He might be supreme. So that He might be our Lord. So that He might topple the rulers, the authorities, the principalities, the powers. So that He might eventually toss death into the lake of fire. So that he could conquer all of these things. If he's the head. And you're the body. What do you think the Christian life should look like? Do you think the Christian life should be one of coziness? And security and safety and comfort? It's so interesting to me that Christmas has become the exact opposite The marketers are brilliant. They have have hypnotized us. They have completely and utterly turned it around. It is no longer about the risk of God to save us. It is about chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Jack Frost just kind of sort of nipping at your nose. I mean, look at the picture that we have of Christmas when you Google Christmas Could you guys show that image of Christmas for me? It's after the Bible reading. That's Christmas. That's the Google understanding of Christmas for an image. And by the way, that's just the computer algorithm running, finding where all the humans go, and oh yeah, that's Christmas to me. And by the way, I love that picture. I want to have a fireplace. I want to have a stocking. I want to have a warm, cozy... Comfortable, safe Christmas. And beyond that, I want January, February, March, April, May, June, July. I want it all to be safe and comfortable and cozy. But nobody will know my name. Nobody will care who I am at the end of my days. I'll be like all the hobbits who live their life out completely, utterly endlessly clueless about the evil that lurked in Mordor. I'll be one of those hobbits that just was so cozy and happy and having my pints that everything was fine, but I never knew the peril, the danger that I could have entered into, the cause that I could have been a part of. If you are a part of Lyft, you have left the shire, (laughs) and you are on the road to Mordor. You are helping bring teenagers, the most feared of our species, into the kingdom. You are giving of your time, your talents, your money, your resources, and we thank you for that. You are spending time there, and you are making a difference. If you are in our nursery, you have left the shire. You have entered in the path of suffering. (laughs) You are spending time loving little ones. You are spending time changing diapers. You are part of a bigger cause. If you are a part of our worship team, you have left the shire. You have decided that you will face The dangers of standing in front of a group of people who will look like this at you sometimes when you play the wrong note or you sing a song they don't like. And you have decided, I will take it for the cause. If you've signed up for a small group, you are taking steps out of the shire Because you are starting to say, I need people around me because this adventure I'm on is too big for me to do on my own. I need a fellowship around me. I need people to help me because I can't carry it on my own. You see... If you have taken any of those steps, and by the way, there's many, many others if you've helped on Second Saturday. I mean, there are lots of things, but only you know if you are still safe. Only you know how cozy and secure and if you're locked yourself up in your little shire hut. Only you and Christ know that. But this passage tells us That is not an option. See, when Christ is the head, when he's sovereign, you are invited into submission to Jesus Christ. Did you hear the language that I used? That was very purposeful. You are invited into submission to Christ. Because most of us think submission is no fun. None of us want to submit. None of us want to give up. But that's what the Christian life, that's what the message of Christmas is about. Jesus entered the manger. It meant excrement. It didn't mean cozy, candy cane, mocha. And Christ calls us to that. He avails us. He opens the door to a great adventure for us. Wow! Well, I'm inspired. Thank you. That's just you know. Why couldn't you have talked about chestnuts and fires? I can we go back to that picture? I really like the picture, Steve. I mean, you're talking about leaving the Shire. And you're talking about leaving the Shire and facing Sauron. I mean, where's where's the inspiration, Steve? Where's the inspiration? This is Christmas time. I'm supposed to leave with a a happy, joyful feeling in my heart. Where is that? How did Jesus do any of this? How did Jesus leave the most secure place ever created? The one that we're all looking forward to joining Him in. How did He leave that place and come and join us here? And face certain preordained death on the cross? Hebrews Hebrews tells us that Christ fixed His eyes on the cross for the joy that was placed before Him. The huh? The joy that was placed before Him. What? Yeah. You see, if you understand that God is sovereign in, in your life, and if you allow Him to do this reordering in your life, and if you submit to His sovereignty, then through it all you will find joy. Excuse me? Picture it this way. If there is a God, if there is a God who is the one that created your body, knit you together in your mother's womb, if there is a God who has promised to give you the spirit of himself that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. If there is a God that as you enter into communion and fellowship with him, you experience this life-giving life that when you run, you will not grow weary. And when you walk, you will not faint and you will soar like an eagle. If you experience this God, if there is this God that's allowing this to be transmuted or infused or placed in you in some way, wouldn't you want that at all costs? I've heard people say, boy, you know, if they could get a a supplement that they just took that energy out of that little child that I'm watching at church, if they would just take that and put it into a pill so I could ingest it, and then I would freak out all morning long at church. (laughs) I mean, I've heard some of you say you want that. You want not to freak out at church, but you want the energy, you want the vitality, you want the energy, you want the life a child has. I just want the knees a kid has. <laughs> the flexibility. When we look at a little child and we think, "Oh, bottle it, sell it. I'll buy it." But there's a God who says, there's a God who says, my spirit in you will give you abundant life. It'll give you life beyond measure. It will give you joy, exceeding joy. It will give you what you are longing for. More than that pill. More than the coziness of Christmas. More than any gift. More than any stocking stuffer. My spirit Will be in you. That's why Paul in prison, in this letter, in verse 24, writes this Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Wow. If only you had a pastor that loved you like that, right? If only you had an apostle that loved you like that. If only you had a savior that loved you like that, who could, for the joy placed before them, suffer for the body, the church, and in it rejoice. Gang, that's the Christmas message right there. Have you ever had something intrude upon your holiday season? Oh, and you're just like, man, this just is, this isn't the holiday I pictured. This isn't the Christmas I had always longed and hoped for. What are you comparing it to? An L.L. Bean catalog? Where did this come from? This notion, this coziness, this warmness, this this safety. Where is this from? It is not from the gospel. It is not from the story you read about Christ. And many of us have made safety and security and prosperity an idol. And one day. One day it'll all disappear. One day on your own, you will die. One day I will get a phone call. And I will come. And I'll talk to your family about you. (laughs) You better love those people. (laughs) And we'll have a conversation. And we'll shed some tears. And we'll rejoice over your life if you have lived it well and if you have followed Christ. But it is all on you. None of us can live life for you. All I can do is invite you to the adventure. All I can do is invite you to see this story, this Christmas story, in all of its brilliance. One thing I want to invite you to this season as we do every year is to give to Advent Conspiracy. I have a video I'd like to share with you and we'll close our time with this.
1: For many of us, Christmas is a time of year that holds some of our dearest memories. We're introduced as kids to this season that brings our loved ones together and is filled with celebration. We sang songs, set up nativities, decorated houses. We learned Christmas is actually a real story with shepherds, wise men, Joseph and Mary. The story of when God the Father gave his son. But now that I have children of my own, it feels like the story of Christmas is simply a story about more more toys, more things. And even though I'm the parent, I gotta admit that in all the busyness, I buy into it too. I've traded away the best story in the world for what's on sale. What if God had something better than this for all of us? I want to show my kids the real story of Christmas this Advent season. The story of Christmas isn't told with free two-day shipping or Black Friday deals. But the story of Christmas is worthy of celebration. God the Father giving us his son, good news to those in need. What if my family spent less on us this year and instead gave some of what we didn't spend to provide good news to those in need? With two billion people still without access to clean water, what if my kids started to see part of their Christmas celebration as a way to love kids halfway around the world. What if we realized Christmas actually is a story about more, more hope, more joy, more meaning, and who knows, maybe each of us realize there is more to the story, more to Christmas, more to us, and with that, the world could change again.
0: This Christmas, would you be bold enough to leave the shire? <laughs> leave the comfort, cozy, LL being Amazon Prime Christmas behind and enter into the Christmas that Jesus entered into? He left security and safety and coziness. Imagine the fireplace in heaven. That's got to be a good one. And he entered into this world. And face the dangers and the perils of death for us. On the third day, he pulled off Easter. Well, we'll talk about that in a few months. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this invitation to a life that is full of joy. A life that can be reordered by your supremacy. A life of submission at your invitation, Holy Spirit, give us strength, the willingness, the faith, the desire to say yes. Help us when this world beckons at us and tells us, "That's dumb." Nobody does it that way. Help us to remember that you're not Lord of that. You're Lord of us. And we are called to be different and called to look different and called to enter into your life and death and your resurrection. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. May you experience the great joy of the Christmas message, that Jesus is sovereign, that he is supreme, and he wants to reorder your life and give you great joy in submission to him. Amen.